All right, so I'm so excited to be with my dear friend, longtime dear friend, Jeremy Guthrie, um, and break down this amazing life story. <laughs> you're, you're, you're what, 44? 44 years old. But you've got like a lot of miles under the tires. Like you, you have like some like. Hey, we rotate them though. We keep yeah, them fresh. You've got like some like adventures that are so good and I can't wait to go into it. But like quick introduction. So um, Jeremy went to BYU out of like a kind of had a storied high school athletic career. Yeah. Lit it up. You played three sports. Yep. Basketball, football, baseball. Yeah. All state, three sports. Um Multiple years, right? Yeah. I was uh, played varsity basketball all three years, varsity football junior, senior year, and then varsity all three for baseball. All, all in Oregon. All in Ashland, Oregon. Small little town, the Ashland Grizzlies. Our school was known much more for football than anything else. Basketball, we went one in 15 back-to-back years in league, so nothing to write <laughs> home about, but uh, <laughs> baseball was a little bit better. So tore it up, uh, went to BYU out of – High school. Yeah, no, that was really interesting. I wasn't, I was going to go to BYU regardless because I'd had such a good experience at EFY when I was a junior in high school. Okay. And so I kind of chose BYU regardless. Football went well my senior year. So I sent my tapes in to coach Norm Chow, the offensive coordinator. And I thought, you know, can I just walk on? I know I'm not probably good enough to be a scholarship athlete, but maybe I could walk on. And I was going to pursue that. And last minute, I decided to play baseball my senior year and was pitching. And then scouts started to find out a little bit about me as I was throwing in the mid nineties. But towards the end of the season, one of the coaches from one of our teams in the league actually came up to me and said, Hey, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I know you're going to BYU. I know coach Gary Pullins. Would you want to play baseball there? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, I plan to play football, but if I could play baseball, that'd be great. So not until maybe May or June of my senior year did, did BYU baseball even know that I exist. That's crazy. So super last minute, but I didn't but, end up but, going but go to BYU. Back. You didn't. You weren't even going to play baseball your senior year. No, I'd had I'd had an injury the year previous. My back kind of had a back spasm, so I couldn't pitch most of the season. We didn't even have a summer team in Oregon either, where I lived. So between ages fifteen and eighteen, I really pitched very, very little, and the experience wasn't fun. Our team didn't win a whole bunch. I didn't get to play or pitch as much as I wanted to. So, come senior year, it was more like you know, why am I going to waste my time playing baseball? I'd rather just focus on football and finish my senior year and have fun and then go to BYU, which is what I wanted to do either way. But you were like dealing like 90 plus in high school. Yeah. I mean, dealing dealing usually refers to getting people out. I got occasionally, I got some people out, but my coach told me, um, and it was a new coach the last year. And that was one of the big things that helped me make that decision. Yeah. Um, we got a coach, Gunnar Gerwell was the head coach and a good friend of mine, Bill Swartout was the assistant coach and Bill's one really that helped me make the decision to play. But he told me at the start of the year, cause he knew I had a good arm. He said, if you can throw a hundred miles an hour, you will be a first round draft pick this year. So I spent my entire senior year trying to throw a hundred. I never got there, but I pretty much looked like a guy trying to throw 100 versus trying to get people out. And so <laughs> dealing, not necessarily maybe at times, but mostly just Overthrowing. But you had like the like raw skills. Like yeah, you had sure. like, because in high school, I mean, somebody touching 90 in high school. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's, you, throw, you throw 90 miles per hour in those days. Like, you're going to get scouted. Yeah, you for know. sure. So you, so you go to BYU, um, have a good experience at BYU. Yeah, I think uh, the most, the highlight was I met my my wife. 
Uh, Jenny and I met even before school started during orientation, uh, just on a whim. Oh, it's Jen's, uh, the way my wife described Jen just barely is Jen is a bombshell. Bombshell, like, yep. Like Still a- beautiful, you know. Yeah. So Jeremy was just smitten. I was. Uh, she was in our dorm, which was May Hall, right beyond center field at, at BYU. And she had been there summer term. And so she was coming over to visit a friend or two. And the ping pong ball rolled over to where her and her friend were sitting. I said, hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm from Oregon. What are your names? And she's like, oh, I'm Jenny. This is my friend Amanda. And we're actually from Oregon as well. And so in about two minutes, we put together some common friends that we had, even though we were from other, from opposite ends of the state. Yeah. And that was kind of that, you know, it was like, okay, I met her and then ran into her again. Five days later, at that point, we exchanged phone numbers and began to hang out with each other and eventually went on a date and became boyfriend and girlfriend. And I took two years off after that and we got married four years later, but that's jumping ahead quite, you, quite you, a bit you, there. You went on your mission. Yeah. How did Stanford come about? Yeah, that's a good question. So my, my first year at BYU wasn't great. You asked about my experience. My best part of my experience was I met Jenny, um, met my, my good friend and business partner, Brian Smith, and had a blast that way. Baseball was okay. I started off really well and then I pitched pretty bad the rest of the year. So towards the end of the season, I think I was just ready to be done and go and serve the mission that I was prepared to serve. And so I did that. And while I was serving in Spain, towards the end of my time in Spain, I got a phone call from my mission president. And he said, hey, I just spoke with your parents. There's a unique opportunity for you to maybe go to Stanford when you get home. Um, It's through a baseball scholarship, but I need you to write a couple of entrance essays to see if you can get accepted first. And so I wrote an essay, a couple of essays on my preparation day sent them back to my parents. I think I actually physically wrote them because there was not email at that time on the mission. And when I got home, they said, don't worry about it. We'll submit the essays. And when you get back, you can decide if you go back to BYU or if you go to Stanford. And so it was really the efforts of my dad and my coach, Bill Swartout, that I mentioned earlier. They had called Stanford and kind of bothered them enough. And Stanford said, okay, let me, we'll look into who he is. And they talked to some of the scouts who had seen me before and said, you know, who is this kid? Should we be interested? And they said, yeah, you know, we saw him two years ago. He threw the ball hard. He had some raw talent. We think you should, you should give him a chance. So go go to Stanford, decide to go to Stanford. Was it a hard decision or was it not hard? Was it like? Um, it was hard in the sense that my, my best friend Brian and I had a, an apartment already set apart, you know, to go to. I had my classes already set up. So it was more comfortable. Yeah, it was comfortable. Yeah. And I was going to spend time with him. But in terms of my relationship with Jenny, she was still single. We were going to continue to date. Um, but she wasn't at BYU any longer. She had gone home and started working back home in Portland, Oregon. Okay. So in that regard, um, you know, I just, I looked at Stanford as a unique opportunity, both educationally as well as athletically. And I thought like, why would I pass this up? It just seems. You got to go for it. Yeah. Too good to be yeah. true. And yeah. so I, I made the the transfer last minute in August of 2000 when I had returned home from Spain. And uh, I really didn't know what I had. They didn't know what I had and I didn't know what I had. That was the unique part. And uh Within a couple of months, I'd gained my strength back. I'd started working out again for the first time in two years. I hadn't even thrown a ball in over 24 months, but uh, just kind of resumed activity. And, um, you know, did it just come back better? It did. Like, it did it, come back, you know, better. like, because obviously you had the raw skills, but there was a point where it went from like, hey, you know, Jeremy has raw skills to like, Jeremy's really good. You know, the unique thing about it was I think the two years off allowed me to kind of erase some poor mechanical habits that I had developed. And so I was kind of a blank canvas for the pitching coach, Tom Kunis. Um, even our, our assistant coach, Dean Stotts, was a really good pitching mind. And so he gave me a few pointers as well. 
but they kind of just molded my mechanics and changed my pitch grips. And I didn't have any like resistance because I didn't have anything. Nothing felt normal. Yeah, Yeah, nothing felt good anyhow. So I just did what they said. So talk to me about that Stanford experience. It was the best. Uh, I really, really love Stanford. Um, Anytime somebody asks me about that time and my wife, she says of all the places she would go back and live. She loved it. Palo Alto is one of those places that she'd go back to in a heartbeat. So you guys got married while you were... Yeah, while I was there. Uh, there. I played one season. We got engaged at Christmas. So six months after I returned from my mission, we got engaged and we got married 11 months after I returned. So six months later. Was it just like... You lit the world on fire the day you got there. Yeah, like, it really like, was. You know, it was unique. The The Lord saw fit to put that in my path. You know, I had done my best and still try to do my best to put him first and seek first his kingdom and, and his glory. And so I just, I didn't really know what was going to happen. And for me, it wasn't like, you know, hey, you do your part. I've done my part. It just was, I love baseball. I love athletics. So I'll work hard. And if it works out, great. And it just seemed to... It just, it just seemed it. to click. Yeah. Like from within a month, I was already throwing probably 92, 93 miles an hour. And then suddenly I'm getting pitching instruction. My mechanics feel better. I'm more consistent. I throw better strikes. My pitch, my pitches themselves were better. My slider that I developed was a much better pitch. My curve was good. My changeup was good. I won my first games, my first eight starts as a sophomore after two years off, we beat you know, Mark Pryor was the greatest pitcher maybe um, to ever yeah. pitch in college. He yeah. was 15 and one, and we were the team that beat him. I pitched a two hit shutout against him. He was where? He was at, he was at USC. USC. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I went from a nobody to uh, the Friday night starter on the number, I don't know what team. We probably got up to number three or four that year. Because you rankings. guys were good. We were good. Yeah. yeah, we were really good. And I was 8 0 with a ERA right around two. And everyone was trying to figure out how, who I was, what? where I come from and <laughs> how was I doing it? So, you know, I had the, the secret in my back pocket was, was the man upstairs. That's crazy. Certainly. It's so crazy. So you get, you get married. How did that transition from I'm playing at Stanford to I'm going to go play in the big leagues or I'm going to go, you know, try to go pro. Yeah. So I got drafted three times, once as an 18 year old and chose to go to BYU, once as a 22 year old and chose to go back to Stanford for my junior season and then after my junior season. But my wife and I got married on June 20th, 2001. And the draft was just a few days before that. So I'd been drafted by the Pirates. But that summer we went on our honeymoon and we were just, you know, enjoying life together and not even really thinking about baseball, even though I had been drafted by the Pirates. And they didn't call me either. They had a lot of changes in their front office. Their general manager got fired their scouting director got fired. And so people that knew me and kind of selected me in the third round were gone. And so I think they almost forgot about me in some way or just kind of, you know. Third round pick's like a high pick. Yeah, I mean, it's important. It's not the biggest (laughs) thing in the world, but it was important to a team. Uh, Are there like 200 like rounds of the draft? Like there was, at the time, I think there was a hundred. Now there's only like 25 or 50. Oh, so it's tightened up. It's tightened up quite a bit. But they called me last minute and said, hey, sorry, we didn't get to you sooner. We want to make you an offer. And at that point I said, I'm, I'm here at school. I'm with my wife. We're comfortable. Our team's going to be ranked number one to start the season. Like I'll just play another year. And they said, Are you sure? And I said, yeah, I want to go back to college for one more year. So I kind of turned them down and went back and we had a great season. I was 13 and two, a first team, all American, a finalist for the golden spikes, which is wow. the Heisman of college baseball. We made it all the way back to the world series. Again, we lost in the semifinals to Texas and I was drafted eventually by the Cleveland Indians at the time, now that the Guardians in the first round. Wow, that's so yeah. crazy! What a story! Yeah, like how 
crazy when you think back to like not gonna play my senior year. <laughs> to, well, you know, it's it's you think about the different uh, what do they call them? I don't know, just points in your life, right? Decisions make a big difference. I think that's what every parent tries to help a, a young person understand that our choices determine our destiny. And so, um, you know, you're never bound by your decisions. We're all going to make mistakes. So you shouldn't have this paralysis. Like I don't want to make the wrong choice, but you should be striving to make good choices because anything you do directly impacts the outcomes. And so, um, I have to be grateful for parents that were encouraging, uh, for a coach that cared enough about me to say, Hey, come out and play called me. He actually called me the week before the season started and said, where are you? Like, why aren't you out at practice? And I said, because I'm not playing. He said, what do you mean? You're not playing. You got to be out here. Please come. Wow. And so, you know, he cared enough. If he was a coach that didn't, didn't care. care, then, then I would have never played that. That's for sure. I would have never played baseball. If Bill Swartout didn't call me and say, where are you? We need you. You're going to have a great season. We're going to depend on you. Come out and have fun. If it's not fun, then that's one thing, it's Incredible. But come be with us. So you got to have people that care, but you know, decisions for adults. And but I think people. about your parents, like the coaches and parents are literally getting you into Stanford Yeah, I while mean, you're on a mission. And my like, dad, literally my, like yeah, my dad the made the financial commitment. He said, listen, you have a scholarship at BYU. It, you know, they give you a full scholarship. You obviously still have that. If money is the question, that's don't, don't worry about that. He said, I've saved money. I've been blessed. Uh, my dad always supported, my mom and dad supported other missionaries, even when I was serving. That was one of the things he always wanted to do is he always wanted to give every young man or young lady in our area a chance to serve. And so he would always contribute, ask a bishop, you know, if there's someone that's on the fringe and it's yeah, a financial so cool. question. And so my dad was was always really blessed. I mean, I'm going to switch topics a little bit, but talk to me about faith because faith has always just been, it feels like it's been easy for you. Um, You know, that's, I, 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 I might tend to agree to that. But I know everyone's faith journey does require effort and it does require a great amount of um, experience with the Savior. And so at a young age, I, what I did, what I was born with was a desire to do good. I, I want to do things that are good by other people. And that's not to say by any stretch that that's what I do, but I genuinely want to. So yeah. my, my inherent desire is to, to please the Lord and, and really to please others around me. No, because I'm looking at that saying like, I mean, when I was in high school, if I had a scholarship to go play somewhere, probably wouldn't have gone on a mission. Like <laughs> I would have been choosing to go out for me was like a sacrifice and it was like a decision. But it felt like for you for early, from early, early on, you just kind of knew like this is what I'm doing. And like with that conviction and that certainty. Well, I think you're right. And I think that's what it takes for anyone. And it doesn't matter if it happens at age 10 seven, 15 or 42, you have to have an experience with the Lord. You have to have that experience through the spirit that witnesses to you of truth. And when you have that experience and you experience the strengthening and the redeeming power of the savior through, you know, what we call his, his atonement or his sacrifice, then it makes it real. And that's, that's ultimately what each person of any faith needs to go through. There needs to be an experience. It's not just about knowing what is right and wrong or seeing others even choose right and what blessings might come into their life or what joy they might experience, but it has to be very personal. And yeah. so because I had that desire in my heart to want to follow things that I felt were good and that were confirmed by the spirit, I had a lot of experiences at a young age by choosing to do certain things. I felt the Lord strengthened me. Yeah. And so by the time I was 18, 
um, I still had that question. I still had the doubt in my own mind. What I was I going to do? Was I going to play professional baseball because I had that chance at 18 years old? Or was I going to do what I felt the Lord yeah, wanted? Yeah, because you were drafted before. I was, like, yeah, you, I was you drafted. Could have, like, I could have definitely said, played I'm baseball. Go play, yeah. But I think the biggest thing is, and this is something I haven't done a very good job of giving advice to those who ask me for advice. But when I really think, why did I serve a mission? I served because I felt the Lord asked me to. And I felt he wanted me to. And that was through really you personal. You felt kind of like called. You, yeah, you felt I, something I, calling to you. Well, saying, I just felt hey, he told me to like in really simple ways through through friends and mentors like Brad Wilcox to my friend Matt Clayson to just the Holy Scriptures. When I read them, I felt the path was clear. Yeah. And so as much as someone might think, oh, you just, you know, you chose to serve because you did it when you were young. No, I chose at 18 again because I felt something tell me that it was right. And because I had followed that impression before in other aspects of my life and then seen the blessings and the strength that came from it, it became easy at 18 years old. And in in your words, it became easier because I knew that voice. No, and I, you know, I I kind of know like the end from the beginning. So I've followed your, you know, we've been friends for a long time and I've followed your track along the way, but just feels like, yeah, like that the ability to just say, yes, I'm in. There's never like really any hesitancy. You're just kind of in, like, you're just kind of like called a little bit, like, you yeah. you know, guided, like, it's like, you know, I'm here for a purpose or, you know, the, there's like a lot of meaning to your life. And I've always admired that about you, kind of how you live kind of this deliberate, meaningful, purposeful life. You know what I mean? Yeah. I appreciate that. My, my wife loves that word intentional, deliberate, you know, deliberate synonym yep. for that is, is do you do things with intention? And mine probably goes beyond that. Mine probably even fringes on OCD yeah. <laughs> at times. But but yeah, I'm I'm really intentional and That's deliberate cool. with what I do. And I I overthink or I plan through the end. And that was something I learned as a young man as well. I learned about planning and setting goals and making plans to accomplish those. Yep. And that became really important. I, I was constantly striving to a, to get somewhere. And I felt like generally I had a plan there. And so you know, when you're 18 years old and you have opportunities in front of you, it really comes down to what is your goal? Yeah. And I could say at 18 years old, my honest goal was to prepare to meet God. And that came right from Alma chapter 12, verse 24. Like Like, that is what I felt. I genuinely wanted to prepare. And so I looked at baseball and I looked at serving the Lord full-time as a missionary. And I thought, what do I feel helps me accomplish my ultimate goal? And it was clear at 18 when I had to make that decision, what, what was the right choice? It was like last on the list for me. It was like so far down the, uh-huh. like I got, I went on my mission, kick it and screaming. And that's all. And know, I think like that's I, the great, you know, that, <laughs> and I think I've grown much more in appreciation for that. I think at times, you know, when you're inexperienced and I still am, but you just want, you want someone to do something. If you've experienced something good, you want them to do it. Yeah. You're almost impatient yeah. in understanding that they come from a different part of life yeah. with, with a different internal system and thought process like you're expressing. And so it's okay. The Lord, the Lord doesn't favor me any more than he favors someone that kicks against the pricks, right? Like you're over there, like kicking and screaming at the end of the day, he's going to work with you and he's going to be patient. I've felt that my entire life. I've like, and I, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, with my kids and even like, you know, my profession for the longest time 
I worked with kids, you know, it was, you know, young people that were going out to sell and, you know, and I always just could relate, you know, to kids that had struggled because I'm like, I, I get you, I understand where you're at. And I can just tell you like, like you need to like be better. You need to step up and you'll be happy that you did. You know, because I, I think about for for me specifically the mission, and it actually I, I think about this a lot about that crossroads and my life and like what I thought life, the perfect life would be at eighteen, and my vision was just so small. You know, it was placed baseball, and it was my high school girlfriend, and that was about as big as my world got. And going on a mission, it kind of put me on a different track. And, you know, I ended up coming down to Utah County and which opened different doors. And, you know, I I look at where I'm at with my family and my wife and, you know, my profession, all these things. I'm like, none of those, I I would not have got on that road. You know, I would have gone on a different road. And so those coincidences are just like, you know, it makes you realize like there's a bigger plan. Like there's just like a bigger picture, you know, that you're, that you're like in this thing. Well, I love what you say. Just the idea that you've seen yourself grow and you can relate to so many more people because it was you. Yeah. There's some empathy. That's that's value that I wish I have could have more often in my life is could I have better empathy and understand someone where they're coming from and, the fact of the matter is sometimes I can't yeah. in the way that you can. That's a great gift no, it's interesting. that you have that, uh, that I don't have. Right. And so, so, t- so talk to me about your like almost winning the golden spike award to going into the minors. Like, how was that? Was it hard? Did you like just blow through the minors and it was all green lights or was like, was there resist? Was there resistance? I mean, how was that experience uh, to trying, start, to, trying yeah. to make the big leagues? So to start, there was little resistance. I started in double A as a 23-year-old, I think even 24. I so turned. an older pitcher. like Yeah, much older. Any... I mean, most of my teammates were 19, 20, 21. Yeah. Um, I was 24 because my birthday was on April 8th, which was right around opening day. So my first 10 starts were in double A, Akron, Ohio, home of LeBron James. He was being drafted that same year, actually number one overall by, Taken. The, by the Cavaliers. Yeah. But I was, I mean, I was so good in my first 10 starts that they actually told me, listen, you're going to go to the major leagues, but we're just going to give you a little pit stop and AAA on your way up. And that pit stop ended up being about a three and a half year pit stop. Because when I went to AAA, my very first pitch, I believe it was my first pitch in AAA was a home run. And I had not given up a home run in 65 innings wow. in AA. And so that was certainly a sign of things to come because the rest of that season, I struggled to a record. I think I was four and nine with an ERA around six, where I was six and two in double A with an ERA at one four four. Wow. So you just, just like the exact opposite. Dominated double A. Dominated and then I got absolutely dominated. But well, what's the, crazy is that the the competition level's not that much different, right? No, it's not. It's just, you know, the approach, the just everything. There's so many different factors. Working with a catcher is very valuable. It's a skill that you learn. Coaching coaching is different. Um, the mindset becomes different. You know, now they've told you you're going to go to the major leagues. You're just a step away. Hey, just give us a couple of weeks here. Kind of moving away. Yeah. Yeah. So you can lose focus on the things that have gotten you and helped you be successful to that point. And, and so for the next 
two years, two complete years, I was in complete red light and bumper to bumper traffic in terms of my path to the major leagues. When, when did it like, when did you get your mojo back or when did it like, was there glimpses of greatness? Oh, all there was the way, very or? few glimpses. There was not many glimpses. <laughs> <laughs> there maybe a pitch or two, but no, generally speaking, there were truly not many glimpses. Rough, and, huh? and I was, you know, I was to the point where even my roommate that we were living with one summer is like, you know, maybe this isn't for you. And, and my, my good friend, Brian's like, don't listen to him. Like, he's just, you know, don't listen to that. Like that, you know, this is your path. Just continue to work and grind. Um, but I think it's going back again to that faith. You just always have just kind of believed like what, you know, whether it's like your spiritual faith or like in like your profession, you've always just kind of said, no, I'm on this track and I'm doing it. Yeah. I, I think that's true. I think you know, it talks about faith becoming an anchor to the soul. Yeah. That's one of my favorite scriptures that you find in the book of Ether in the book of Mormon. Um, I had an anchor and my wife was part of that anchor, but ultimately that anchor was the Lord. Yeah. And so I can't say that my through my struggles that I was just, oh, you know, everything's great. I have faith in God and it'll all work out. But when it when push came to shove and I went to bed and and things were hard and I, my performance was terrible and my reaction coming home from a bad game to my wife was maybe less than, than you're, loving. You're showing up, right? <laughs> that ultimately I really did truly believe that in the end I had a purpose and my purpose was yeah. not to be a major league baseball player. That was not who I was. That was not my purpose in life. And so I could really genuinely accept, okay, if this doesn't work, Whatever outcome. then I'm fine. Yeah. And, and I could do that for two reasons. Number one, for the faith. But I think number two, and I tell young players all the time, I also had an education. Baseball is really stressful and you're competing against the best players in literally the world for a finite amount of jobs. Yeah. At the time it was 25 players per team. So 750 in the major leagues. Now there's an additional player. So it's 780 players in the world get to play major league baseball. And so you're competing against a lot of very talented players. And the fact of the matter is, is some small fraction two 5% are going to play the game for more than two years. And so there's, when you get into that circumstance and you're a high school kid that got a couple hundred thousand dollars maybe, or maybe even got a million bucks, yeah. you know that a million bucks after taxes takes away whatever, oh, it, 40 it, to 50%, it, it's really it, 500 it, it, grand. It feels like it's a lot of money and it's just But not, it's not. It's no, not. It's I not. mean, you buy a nice car and maybe you buy a house and now all of a sudden you're just as poor as everyone else around you. But the fact of the matter is I had an education. Yeah. And so I think that also alleviated the stress. And so I played with a lot of players that it was everything. They were all in on baseball. Were, which sometimes is like your best friend. You know, yeah. like some of these guys, like the reason, you know, I've been at points in life where I had to burn my boats. Yeah. And that was why I succeeded because there was no plan B. <laughs> but for you, it was just kind of like a safety net. It's Correct. Like there, there was a lot of boat burning, but I think for most people that put so much pressure on them. Yeah, it's that too it much. Really, it really phases a lot of your teammates out. Yeah. A lot of that competition goes by the wayside because it's just too much for a young player away from home. Maybe for the first time, a lot of them are out of their own country where they grew up. And so for those two reasons, those two anchors, I think it just allowed me to weather the storm. I'm out there and I'm just getting punished by huge waves in the ocean, getting crushed, thinking I'm going to drown. And then eventually just the sun comes out. I'm able to get my head above water in 2005. A coach gave a great piece of advice. It was really simple. He just said, why don't you just try pitching low in the zone? 
in the middle and see what happens instead of trying to be so perfect on the corners and often missing up in the zone where the hitter has a better chance to drive the baseball into a gap or even over the wall. And so I took that advice and my entire career changed really in maybe a a week or two. I went from a pitcher that was just real hit or miss and getting smashed to a guy that became a lot more aggressive, a lot more confident and a lot more successful. And so end of 05 into 06, I pitched really well. And that really kind of set me up for what would become my major league career, starting not with Cleveland, but actually with the Baltimore Orioles because I was released after 06 and picked up by the Baltimore Orioles and made that team and pitched the next five years as an Oriole. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the first like big contract. Yeah. That was like the first, like why I pitched five years um, with Baltimore and I was nearing free agency and they actually traded me to Colorado. And, um, but the majority of my career, everything I built up and kind of my resume to major league teams was really built in Baltimore. Yeah. And I was, you know, that you, were op- guy, you were the guy there. Yeah. Like, you, I mean, we you, traded, you, we, you were the number one, right? We traded away our best pitcher. Our, our, my first year, we had a pitcher named Eric Bedard, who was lights out, set the record for the most strikeouts in Baltimore Orioles history. Wow. And they traded him the next year for some younger pitchers. And so for the next four years, I was the, the opening day Putting starter. In more innings than kind yeah, of. Yeah, more innings, more yeah. wins than just about every teammate. But that was kind of always your thing was you just like put innings on, right? That like over the course of a season, you would just. Yeah, I was really, really grateful that I could stay healthy. I think that's yeah. maybe, you know, I don't think I have anything I'm necessarily proud of in my career, but maybe what I'm most grateful for is that I always got to play. And I don't think people recognize how hard that is sometimes, but most pitchers spend months, even years on a on a disabled list or an injured or list. It ends their career. Yeah, yeah, or it ends their career. As good or as bad as I was at different times, the beauty was healthy. I was always healthy. And I felt like I could perform to the best of my ability. And th- I felt like the team could depend on me. And I wasn't a Hall of Fame or an all-star caliber pitcher very often. But they knew, okay, he's going to give us a good effort. He's going to do his best to get deep into a game. And generally speaking, we should be in contention to win the game when he pitches. Yeah. And I feel I feel grateful for that. It's not that I'm proud about it. I just feel good about it. And it makes, you know, when I say I pitched 15 professional seasons— like I pitched, you, pitched you, I pitched you, fifteen you, professional you seasons. Legit, like pitch fifteen. Yeah, seasons. like some it guys, you know, they have twelve years in the big leagues and they were injured for four of them. Yeah, which you know you don't take anything away from them, but playing baseball is fun, and yeah. so you don't want to be you, on an you injured actually list. Play. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. be on a list and away from the team and a rehab assignment or recovering from a surgery. That's unfortunate. That's the the common thing. Yeah, but I was grateful I didn't have to do that. And kind of had like a a, a big opportunity to go to Colorado and Colorado was like really hard. Colorado was the bottom of the bottom. You thought it got bad in Buffalo and bad maybe in Baltimore in times when I didn't pitch well, but I got traded to Colorado the year before being coming a free agent for the yeah. very, the very first and only time really in my career. And I was excited about it. I thought Colorado was great. It was close to home in Utah where, where our home was in the off season. Yep. Um, and I had a lot of confidence. I felt good coming off my year in Baltimore in 2011 and, it got off to a good start. I won my first game in Houston. We were yeah. one, I was one and zero, and helped the team win against the Astros, who at the time weren't a very good team. And then from there, it just it just got ugly, uglier, and ugliest over the and, next and what, three months. Was it confidence? Was it just like the well, ball just travels in Colorado? <laughs> like was it yeah. you know a combination of all of it? Like what was the? I, yeah, certainly it was a little bit of the physics of it all of the whole thing, and then it became probably more mental, physical. So it was just. 
it was a failure in all regards for me individually. Like they depended on me. I wanted to be good for them. I felt like I disappointed them the first few starts. I had an injury on a bicycle accident of all things, riding to the baseball field with cameras, actually doing a special for the actual network that we were broadcast on. I had a, a freak accident where my chain fell off. I sprained my shoulder. I missed three starts. You know, people started saying, "What well, you got hurt riding a bike. What's this all about? When I came back, I wasn't very good. And, and it just, it just snowballed. And I really couldn't pitch in Colorado without people booing me. If I gave up a hit or two, it'd be booze and then a home run, louder booze. And so it just got I mean, to I the look point. At, you know, I look at like Zach Wilson right now. Yes, um, and very kinda, much. You know, a first round pick, yep. top pick. And like, you just kind of get to the point where it's like you're on pins and needles. You can't do anything. You know, you're getting booed first quarter. And there's just so much pressure. I, I remember... You know, we we were always, you know, cheering for you, even back in the day when you were in Cleveland, you know. And, and so, like, when you went to the Orioles, it was just such a fun, you know, four or five seasons where, like, you were just dominating. Like, you're, you know, putting in solid innings and, you know, starting and doing so good. Then you went to Colorado, and I, I still remember we went out to see you play. <laughs> I remember you guys. We had, like, out. the whole crew. I think we had, like, ten people. And we go out and you got lit up that game. Like it was like they were just dropping moon balls. And and like my heart just hurt for you because I knew like you're giving it your best. And it just wasn't there. Like it just wasn't, you know, your best wasn't good enough in that chapter of the journey. And I felt like you handled it with class, but it had to have been so hard. Like, I remember we were down on the field and you're trying to give us a tour of the field and trying to be like a good buddy and a good host, but you had to have been hurting. Yeah, no, there was, there was a lot of pain in those days. My wife, you know, they booed so loud and had so many negative things to say that my wife just stopped coming to the games. She couldn't even know, do it. Because my daughter was at the time um, eight years old now, so yeah. she could understand what people were saying. So my wife just said, I, I just can't even come to the games because... And they kind of like treat so you like you're not even human. They like do. It, it, yeah. It's, you know, I don't know if it's fair or not fair, if it's just like what you sign up for being a professional. Yeah, I mean, you sign up for it at the end of the day and you know you're responsible for your for your outcomes. It's it's unfortunate, but I think the comparison you make to probably what Zach feels in, in some fraction, I mean, he's got even more pressure. Uh, the market's big city. Ten, yeah, the market's yeah. 10 times bigger than Colorado. Really, the draft pick status of being a number two overall pick. Yeah. With I wasn't even with my original team anymore. I'm with my third team. Yeah, and it was later in your career. Later too. in my career. Yeah. So yeah, but I know what he. I know that feeling of I'm so buried that there's no way out of this. Like yeah. that's that's what I felt. I'm not going to put those feelings into to what he's going through, but that's what it felt like. And it got to the point where literally they they almost said the same thing. They said in so many words, "It's so bad. Like there's nothing for us to do." And so they. They actually tried to ask me if I would want my unconditional release, which means I can get released, but I forfeit the rest of my salary. So talk, talk to me about that because this is like a great negotiation story. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, so, so like this, you know, this so is I, like, I made good money that year. That was the most, my the largest salary I'd had to that well, point. What was your salary I had a year? salary, I think it was like $8.2 million for the season. So it was like a like you'd worked your whole career to get yeah, that Yeah, to get that. And that's contract. how baseball works. The first three years, you're at the complete mercy of the team. You get paid the minimum more or less. Yeah. Then the next three years, you're in arbitration. And so generally speaking, your compensation is fair compared to what others at your age and your service time have done. And so by my third year of arbitration, I've gone from a player earning $300,000 to $8 million. 
And what they were essentially asking me in the middle of July is, listen, you're broken and this situation is as bad as it can possibly be. Um, so here's what we'll do for you. If you want to be released and try to go fix yourself somewhere else, because they had come to the conclusion it was a Colorado issue. And and I probably had come to that same conclusion yeah, myself. You like, to be out. This is like a Colorado issue. you pitched issue. better on the road, right? Yeah, I, I pitched all right. I didn't realize how well how bad the splits were because I wasn't paying attention. It just, it just all felt bad in the moment. Yeah. But yeah, on the road, I had an ERA under four, like a wow. three and a half. So you were actually like pitching really well. Yeah, and at home, I had a nine and a half. So it was dramatic. <laughs> so painful. But they offered me, they said, we'll give you an unconditional release. You can go to any team you want, but you forfeit the remaining $3.7 million. And I asked my agent, I said, is this a good deal? He's like, no, it's not a good deal. He <laughs> says, there is nothing you can do in the next two and a half months. That's going to fix anything. That will, that will earn you that 3.7 back. He says, you've earned that money. That's money you've earned. Yeah. They committed it to you. You haven't quit on them. You're terrible, but you haven't quit. <laughs> like you're still pitching. You're still available. You're not faking an injury. Like you're there. If they, if they signed you, you're committed to them. They should be committed to you. He says, no. do not accept that. And so we called their bluff. Essentially. We said, no, like I'm here. You can use me zero times the rest of the season, or you can pitch me every single day, but I'm here. And within 24 hours, they actually shipped me off to Kansas City. They traded me for another pitcher that was pretty much having almost the exact so they, season. They, they knew it was just like, yeah, they're like, hey, we're, we're going to trade hey, you and get something, let's, but let's go if give we can it a save go. three and a half million let's dollars on the it. way, let's try this. Let's pay, <laughs> can we have three and a half million dollars out of your pocket? And no. So, okay, thanks. But we so, thought we'd but this try. Is, this is like so great about this story too, because the guy who, who was it from Kansas City that they traded you Jonathan for? Sanchez had thrown a no-hitter for the Giants. He's now with the Kansas City Royals. He's still in the Same league. expectations as I had. Yeah. We're going to bring in a, a pitcher that's had a good track record. This guy's thrown a no-hitter. We're going to bring him to the Royals and he's going to help us become a better team. And it went just as bad for him as it did for me. It was just terrible. And the, it was literally almost the exact swap of a pitcher. Almost the records or the teams were almost the exact same. Our ERAs were within like 0.2. We each had like a 6.5 and a 6.6 ERA. I was three and nine. He was like two and seven. So you're literally like, hey, was, our yeah. guy's broken. Your guy's broken. One Let's man's junk. Is, I, told, I, I think I put on Twitter, one man's junk is another man's junk. And so we swapped for each other. And... Uh, people just think, you know, like the Royals fans are really kind to me. I had a, they've been like, yeah. that was like so fortuitous it was. landing it there. Like it was like, I had a, I had a pitching coach that had been around me a lot. He was Dave Island had been with the, with the Yankees while I was an Oriole. So he saw me pitch a lot. He believed in me. He had told management, listen, this guy is a guy that I wish I could have worked with three, four years ago. Let's get him. Let's How important him. is that? So talk to me about that principle, this, you know, about somebody that just believes in you. It, like, it makes all the difference. And I felt that I felt in two places. Well, I, in Cleveland, I never really felt like anyone truly believed in me. Ones that started going rough. Yeah. Colorado was different. I don't think I deserved to be believed in. So, um, you know, I won't, I won't fault them for that, but but I felt believed in as a pitcher with the Orioles. We had a pitching coach, Leo Mazzoni, who is Hall of Famer in every sense of the word. Um, you know, he coached some of the most some of the most dominant pitching staffs of the Atlanta Braves in the '90s. But he was my pitching coach in Baltimore at the end of his career. And first day on first day in spring training, he's never met me before. He probably knows nothing about me. Just some random guy that the team has claimed off waivers four weeks before the season begins, and he says, "Listen." can you throw a fastball low and away? And that was the pitch that gave me the most trouble my whole four years in Cleveland. I'm like, yeah, of course I can. In my mind wondering, can I actually do this? I throw about a 94 mile an hour fastball low and away. He's like, great. 
can you do it again? I'm like, sure. Do it again. He said, show me you can do it one more time. Three in a row, just dotted, smashing the glove. The catcher just doesn't even move it. And he looks me in the eye and he says, you can pitch in this league for 20 years with that arm. We'll see you later. And he walked off. And I don't think he ever really paid too much attention to me, but I believed that he believed in me. Wow. And that, I had that, a great that, spring. That, that one. He told me, he helped me. He just, yeah, I just, he, I believed that he believed in me. And so that was the case there. And I get to uh, Kansas City and Dave kind of tells me, listen, I've followed you. I've watched you pitch 20, 30 times. Yeah. You're here because we believe in you. You're not here because... You know, because we had to get rid of a pitcher that was struggling to get another. He said, I actually wanted you. Whether you had a six and a half or a two and a half ERA, you're a pitcher that I want no, to work it's, with. It's, it's so special. I, I think about like these like leadership moments and like these little gifts from God. I remember I was 24 years old and I was working for a company and the company goes bankrupt. And, you know, we, we kind of lose everything. Lost our money, you know. The money we were supposed to be paid that year, the company doesn't have it. And I remember meeting, you know, both two of your great friends, Todd Peterson and Alex Dunn. And these guys just believed in me like so much. Like literally they like, I, I, I believed in myself because they believed in me so much. And I think about the difference in my career from just those two individuals that like truly believed in me. And it gave, like, I'd run through a wall for them because, like, yeah, they just, they gave me the confidence to to try and to move forward. And I think them not believing in me or, like, second-guessing me or, you know, diminish, like, it, it would have, like, I hope that I would have, like, been resilient and rose up, but I don't know, you know. And I, yeah, just that, you see that in so many people's lives where they had a leader or a person, you know, and sometimes it's a parent or a coach or somebody that just believed in you almost more than you believed in yourself. Yeah, I and, think that's right on. No, nah, it's so cool. So you, you have kind of this special, you know, coach that early on kind of affirms like, Hey, like it didn't matter what you were doing there. We yeah. wanted you. Clean like it, slate, it wasn't, we wanted, hey, yeah, we, we want you, we believe in you. You're here because we think you're good. Not because, we're just trying to but you see. Kind of, but you kind of like lit it up. Well, the crazy thing was most, I was saying Royals fans are great to me. You know, I had, I, had, I think I had two and a half, two good solid seasons there. One rough season, but it was during the World Series year, which our team was so good that it almost kind of masked my personal struggles. But the first two starts I had in Kansas City actually made my ERA worse. I went five innings. I gave up six runs my first outing. I went five innings. I gave up five my second outing. So I actually pitched really Bad, bad. The first two, and then just absolutely went on a tear. I set the, or I had twenty-two scoreless innings in a row. Wow. Um, ended up winning five of my next six decisions, and come almost contrary to what my agent said. In two months, I actually earned a three-year contract from the from the scrap heaps. He told me, "Listen, you will not get a big league job next year. Just pitch the best you can. Be healthy. Show teams you're healthy." Let's see if we can have some good outings towards the end. But he says, don't expect a major league contract. Don't even think in your mind, I got to pitch well so I can get a big league deal. He says, you're not going to get one. And you absolutely and like I, And I just lit it so, up. Yeah, you, you know, like they, they kind of needed you at that point. It was yeah. like, we can't not have this guy. So they they came back and said, listen, we we want you. We'll give you a three-year contract. And that was the only multi-year contract I ever had in my whole career. Every year was year was a one-year deal. Yeah. But I was given a three-year contract. And in 13, we 
had the first winning record in, I think it was like 15 years. Because you guys had a good young team. Like the yeah, ingredients, players. The ingredients we were there, Yeah, but it was young. Yeah, young position players. And we went out and signed a couple of very, very important keys. Uh, James Shields from the Rays, as well as Wade Davis. We signed Irvin Santana, who was a free agent from the Angels. And so we added two additional free agent pitchers yeah. to go along with myself. And we had our first winning record in 15 years. In 13 and 14, we came back and made our first playoff in 29 years. Should have won the World Series. Had a I chance mean, it to was win like, the World Series. We were, and that, know, we, that was when Baumgartner was like unhittable. Yep, yep. Like he, he was like super Baumgartner. Man, he was good. He was. Like he, he just went on a tear. And I think the biggest demonstration of resilience and just championship caliber mentality and performance was what we did the next year because we got, we finished, we lost in the World Series game seven and I pitched that game. Yeah. I didn't pitch, I didn't pitch great. We, I, I got taken out in a 2-2 tie. The run that was on base was my runner, my my batter, and he ended up scoring as well. So when that runner scored to make it 3-2, that was, no one scored another run the next five innings and that was compliments of Bumgarner for the Giants and our bullpen, which was one of the best in the so league. So good. Yeah. And we lost that game and, and we came back the next year and the people, the people, the writers predicted we would finish fourth in our division. Yeah, they just kind of thought it was a fluke. They thought, that's exactly yeah. what they thought. Of. And in short term, they said that was a fluke and that will not happen again. So we came out in 15, won our first seven games and kind of showed the world we're still here. And we, I don't know that we led the division from start to finish, but I don't remember ever being out of second place. Uh, and that was a dominant team. Like and it was, that, and it was, like a that, was a, that was a special team. It was a dominant special team because the sum of our parts was greater than the whole. We had 25 guys, all of which were talented, but none of which were a superstar. And somehow when we came together and the way we played in our style, we were better than every team, no matter how many superstars you had. Yeah. You could bring us three MVPs. You could bring us Mike Trout. You could bring us Albert Pujols on a team, and it just didn't matter. We were going to beat you because we were a better you, you team. You had a team. Yeah. Like you had we really, were a team. Well, what do you think that comes from? Is it leaders on the team? Is it coaching? Is it, you know, the, the, like manager that's kind of the general manager that's like putting the team together and hiring you know, like, you well, that's know. a good question. I just having spent some time with Theo Epstein um, up here in Utah this week, I think a lot of what he accomplished in, in Boston and Chicago was started by his leadership, but it's different for every team. I, I think the key for us was the fact that we had some players that helped us learn what it meant to be a team. Um, baseball is a real selfish sport. I tell people all the time, like, if you play baseball, you should go play another sport as well because, number one, you need the rest from kind of these finite skills of batting and throwing. Your body just needs a break from that, and you need to be more athletic. You also need to be on just a team because yeah. baseball doesn't teach team very well at any level, not in Little League, not in high school, not in, the, not in professionals, not in the big leagues. It's not a very team-friendly sport generally speaking. And I think that's why a team that is a team stands out so it's much so more. so powerful. Yeah, it's so much more powerful because – you know, your stats are your own stats. And it's but when, a you're, when, you're, when you're on one, like, you know, like I remember I, my high school team won the state championship and we lost early in the playoffs. So we had to come all the way through the, the loser's bracket mm -hmm. and something happened where this, just this magic kicked in. And it was like, people were making plays they shouldn't have made. There was this momentum. There was this is almost this inevitability that like we just can't be stopped. And, you know, like when you're on like a team like that, it's just special. And obviously like you had, you know, those teams at Stanford and 
you know, you that those Kansas City teams were just special. You know, they kind of almost fortuitously all yeah. of a sudden you're just on like you go get a World Series ring and I know. think the biggest ingredient, if I could name one, is just being not selfish. Um if you're a player that goes 0 for 4, but the team wins, find the guy that went two for two and had yeah. a big hit. Find the pitcher that threw a made a big out for the team and go pat him on the butt and say, great game. Yeah. And let them which, tell which, you, which, which is really hard. It is hard. And then let them tell you, hey, you go get him tomorrow. Yeah. But it's easy. And on the flip side, when you go four for four and you hit a couple of home runs and you have a great individual performance and the team loses. Instead of, instead of like, you know, calling, you know, sending a text really quickly and loud talking and being all happy because you did well, go find the guy that struggled that game. Yeah. Say, hey, we're going to need you tomorrow so and, I, and be that way. And that, that really can just spur a team. And that's who the Kansas City Royals were in addition to a lot of other things. I think every kid looks at your life and just says, that's the life I want. You know, like when, when you're a kid playing junior sports or high school sports, you know, you're, we're all aspiring to go be a pro, you know, like that's like the ultimate. And, you know, I, I look at kind of your life and kind of how you've gone through that. And it's, was it what you thought it would be? Like what, what yeah. was kind of like the, Hey, I'm just living a dream and I'm just like <laughs> taking this every day to like, I'm just grateful that I get another year. Yeah. And what was it? Did it ever turn into a job? Did it ever turn into something that's like, I'm going to work. Like I, I don't love this. Um, I think it was probably a job in Colorado because I had to deal with management and coming up to me and trying to talk me through things. I had to talk to reporters all the time and the tone was always negative. Um, the, the joy of the work was rarely there because yeah. the performances were, like were never the... positive. But overall, I think generally beyond that, it always felt like a game. And you I was always, I always felt grateful for it. Even, I think one one experience when I when I pitched game seven and we lost that game in 2014, the team was deflated. There was some tears and there was some real severe disappointment. And they came to interview me and I knew they would because I had started the game as a pitcher. So I had an impact in the result. And, you know, I remember sitting in front of the camera and I have never really seen the replay of it, but I just, in my mind, I was smiling. Even though I would have loved to have been one of 37 pitchers to win a game seven, I was now one of 37 to lose one. Yeah. But I just, I remember thinking like, I'm a part of history. Like, I'm a part of, like, yeah. we just did something that no one would have ever believed in this entire country or world that follows baseball that we would do. No one thought we would be here. They were this close to win. I and I said, I, was, I'm just grateful. Was, like, yeah. I, I just pitched a game seven and I just helped our team get somewhere that we hadn't been in 29 years. And yeah. I said, I couldn't be more grateful. And I was smiling and that was the end of our season. The next day we came back and had a big rally at the stadium, you know, for fans to come and just applaud us for the year for that we had season. and for us to And think, Kansas City yeah. just hasn't experienced oh, that. It, you it's, know what I mean? Just, and it's such a wonderfully close-knit community. Which is so fun to see like how much love, like I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. We haven't won a championship in th you know, 30 <laughs> years, you know? And so like you take like this... Kansas City were like, they've had like a, just like, if you're a Kansas City fan, you've had some good times, you know, yeah. if you're, oh, geez. If yeah, you're with a, the Chiefs and the Royals a now, football fan, if you're a baseball fan, you know, you got, you've had like, you've been able to experience it. Well, that's the, that's the real beauty of it is to do it in Kansas City almost feels more meaningful. I mean, sure. It'd be fun to be a Cubs break a 108 year curse and have 5 million people at your parade. 
but the million but like plus, the, the million plus oh, we man, had were like, so they much. were with us. They yeah. were almost at all those games. They were yeah. at the schools with our kids. And like, it was, it was our family yeah. to celebrate that together. And that's, you know, it's kind of off topic, but that's what we're hoping to bring to Utah. Yeah. You know, as part of big league Utah is something, an organization that I'm with is we're working with the Miller family to bring baseball here is think about coming to, to Utah as much as they love their sports, Real Salt Lake, the Utah Jazz, For sure. even the Bees. Uh, and their college teams, the you know, from the Aggies to the but there's Utes some to there's the, just something special about baseball, and specifically with Utah, it's just going to be so good here. Like it will be, you know, it, ba- baseball is just like this. It's this cadence, you know what I mean? It's this like it's just a part of you. Like I'm I I went back to school in Boston, and I'm like going to Fenway. Of course, I'm going to Fenway. It's you know September. Like how can you not? go to Fenway and see the Red Sox. If you're in Boston in September, it's just, it becomes just a part of the culture. You know what I mean? It's like, so I, yeah, I really hope it happens. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I, I know that you guys have such a phenomenal team that you've put together to go get that, you know, to bring a team here. And I, I just think it'd be a gift yeah, it to is. the state if you can go make it happen. Whenever major league baseball, if they decide to expand, you know, Utah is going to be, one of those groups that on puts the map. their name on the map and yeah, say, hey, on the map. let us have it. And the community that could be forged as already is through other sports teams For and, sure. and universities would be so powerful. But that's, that's what I remember about, about my time in Kansas city. And, and in terms of it being a job, no, it was just always fun. And I enjoyed yeah. every moment of it and all the way to the last moment, which was a bittersweet moment. We were just talking about it a minute ago, but my last game two years after that was, a game in, in Philadelphia as a member of the Nationals. No, but I, I want to lead up to this because this is like, it's another like genuine compliment to you as like a human. So you, you, you transitioned out, you know, the finished up your time in the big leagues, didn't sign another big league contract, went and played some minor league ball the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're kind of, you're getting older at that point. You yeah, know what 30, I mean? Like 36, 37 years old. Yeah. Like, and so you're, you know, still trying to make it, but it's not like ironclad or clear that you can get back to the league. You know, you have all these new players coming in every single year, scrapping to keep their jobs. And you just kind of fought your way into spring training. And I, I remember going out and seeing you in, Florida and you were lighting it up in spring training. You just like, you, you absolutely tore it up. And I remember seeing you and you were out there by yourself. Jen wasn't out there. You were just kind of like trying to pursue this thing, trying to make it happen. And so like, tell me like how you made it like you, you made, <laughs> yeah. you, you made, it was the nationals, right? Yeah, it was. So yeah, like you said, 2016, I was in the minor leagues the whole year statistics were not good at all kind of back to my early days in Cleveland and so you know Jenny was like listen like 2006 15 wasn't a good year even though we won the world series personally it wasn't a good year 16 is the worst year and you're in the minor leagues like it's been a good a been, well, been and, a good run and, and financially up until that point you'd made you know great money yeah. like it, it, you know you're not like yeah, killing she, it in the and minors, she's right. she's like know? listen like it's time like come home and be with the family full time and it's been great and i'm yeah. like i just and i my mind it is Part of it was probably selfish, like, and then part of it I think was also divine, but like, I just didn't want to go out like that. I wanted to go out on my terms, which certainly didn't happen. Spoiler alert. Like I didn't go out on my terms, but I wanted to. 
And so I had to fight to get a job. My agent said, listen, I've called all the teams. No one wants you. I said, how's that even possible? Like I've thrown 95 miles an hour. I've pitched 10 years in the major leagues. Like nobody wants me. He's like, no, no one wants you. And I just, I happened to run into a local scout who lived in Kansas city and he worked for the nationals. And he's like, Hey, who are you pitching for next year? And I said, no one. My agent says, there's nobody that will take me. He's like, what do you mean? No one will take you. He says, we'll take you. I said, really? He said, yeah, bring in, you can compete maybe a long relief job, not a starter, but just come pitch in our bullpen. He said, I'll have a job offer for you tomorrow. And I tell him, hey, I'm getting an offer from the national. He's like, no, I've talked to them. They're like, I wouldn't get your hopes up. Next day, boom, it shows up. It's a split contract. <laughs> if you're in the minor leagues, you'll make X amount. If you're in the big leagues, you'll make this amount. And I'm, he's like, okay, I can't believe it. Like, what, like, what have you been doing, Angel? <laughs> like, what's your job? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, what is like, your job? I'm not paid you on and this. And <laughs> I went to Florida. And, and to your point, like, you know, Jenny had the kids, but I'm sure she, in her mind, she probably thought, okay, like, he'll go down there and give this a try for four weeks and realize what I've seen for the past two years. You kind, of, you kind of said, hey, I'm going to go give it one more try. I'm going to give right? it one more try. Yeah. Like, this is it. Like, I, maybe I'll go to the minor leagues if I feel like it's close, but let me give it one last try. And I went to spring training down in West Palm and I pitched great. And I pitched great from the beginning. And, and I passed about 12 guys who were ahead of me on the depth chart. And Dusty Baker was my manager. And Dusty got to win a World Series last year. I love that man. My time with him was extremely short, but he believed in me enough. Mike Maddox, our pitching coach, believed in me enough. The, the general manager believed in me enough that after six weeks of pitching near flawlessly, they said, listen, you've made our team and you're going to pitch. And not only that, you're going to be a starter again. And so I went from like no chance to maybe be in the bullpen and now I'm a starter. And I just thought I went home and I was so grateful. And I'm, I know I'm saying prayers of gratitude and like just feeling just so grateful to God. Like this is my second chance. I might pitch two or three more years. I've never felt better. I, I felt like my stuff was, <laughs> was better than it had ever been my whole life. My ability to execute pitches had never been better. If you would have asked me, Jeremy, how many years do you think you can pitch? And I was 30, going to turn 38 years old. Well, because I had four in the tank. But, but there's a lot of like great pitchers that kind of have their best years, kind of 37, 38. You I don't know, know about like, a lot. There are some. But, but there's some legendary, like <laughs> well, you got yeah. the Clemens and you got the, you know, Nolan Randy Ryan, Johnsons. Randy and Johnson. Nolan, like there's, you know, yeah. it's not like you can't do it. Like, no, you can do it. Can I mean, do it's it. certainly not impossible. It's not common. But I always felt like I was a young pitcher anyways. And that was kind of that whole experience in high school where I just didn't throw very much. Yeah. And then you take two years off to serve a mission. And so I felt like, you didn't warn your arm I felt out. like my arm was yeah. about 31 yeah, yeah, yeah. years old, even yeah. though I was 37. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But I thought to myself, I'm saying just prayers of gratitude. Like, I'm just thinking this is going to be so great. And I told my wife, like, listen, I'm going to be the best missionary I can be. I'm going to be with Bryce Harper. This is going to be incredible. Bryce had, had just, you know, done some things in his life to demonstrate his, his ever growing faith. And he had been recently married and so, you know, you have this, this other young superstar MVP player that's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm like, this is just, God is just working a beautiful, he's, he's, this li- is a, he's lining God, it this up. This is a great chapter, man. I'm enjoying this chapter. He's people, are gonna, it up. people are going to love this chapter. We're gonna, all going to enjoy this chapter together. And I'm thinking two, three, maybe four more years. Maybe I'll have to retire early because I'm going to have so much in the tank. And I go out there against the Philadelphia Phillies on my birthday, turning 38 years old, feeling like I'm unhittable. And I think it was 10 batters later and about 42 minutes later and 46 pitches later, I walked off and I knew my career was over. Was over. <laughs> it was, it was done emphatically signed, sealed and delivered. One, Thank one, you. Muchas one, gracias por one, venir. <laughs> one inning. I didn't even pitch done. the full inning. I gave up <laughs> 10 runs 
three or four walks, six hits. I didn't even get an actual out. Every out I got was actually a sacrifice fly. So when I got an out, someone actually still scored a run. Nobody actually went 0 for 1 because when you hit a sacrifice fly, it's yeah, an 0 for 0. Count. <laughs> so I actually didn't even get – nobody in the lineup went 0 for. It's there statistically was, there was, <laughs> impossible to do what you did. <laughs> it was bad. And so I knew it was over. They told me, listen, you can go to Syracuse and try to earn your way back. But I knew there was – A, there was no earning my way back, and B – God had God had given me the answer, and so I, you know, he gave me a doozy. I didn't. So, so, so that this answer. this isn't that. This is completely different. But you know, for me, baseball, like, like I remember being on my mission and every day working out and getting ready and going and trying to play. And I came down to UVU, and I just didn't play well in the fall. And but I didn't even know I was trying out for the team. Hmm. Thought I was on the team. <laughs> and the list shows up and I didn't make it. I didn't make the spring team. And I remember just being so broken, like literally like driving up the Canyon, just crying like a baby. And, you know, it was like, it, it was, it meant so much to me. And, you know, I look back now and I'm like, that was like the greatest gift. Like it gave me permission to say like, you're not that good. <laughs> it's, it's time to go, you know, you know, do something else. And I think sometimes like, you know, your failures, if you will, end up being like such a special part of the journey, you know, and, and those are the things that do make you relate to people. Yeah. You know, and when somebody's dealing with hard times or when somebody's dealing with, you know, and you're just like, I've felt pain before, you if know, you're, if you're humble enough and willing to learn and grow yeah. and, and, you know, and, and if you're a person of faith to not curse God, because yeah. how easy is it for us to say like, you know, Hey, you put me here. Why couldn't you just take care of me? And, and there's a lot more serious things than making a college team or extending a professional career. But, you but know, it's super personal, you know, like is. serious is, ser- you know, serious is relative to the individual. Yeah. And I think, you know, in that moment, that was everything to you, yeah. you know, and you look back and you can laugh about it, but it takes some time to be able to look back and just have that be just one of like part of the journey, you know? Yeah. It's all part of the journey. And so, 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 so I think my it, baseball journey ended that day and, but it really didn't. I mean, you're still going like you're, <laughs> still, you're, you're, you're still, you know, involved in broadcasting yeah. and you're, you know, you've got your company. Um, tell me a little bit about your company. Yeah. Custom cleats. So. Um, when I pitched, I love sneakers and, you know, it's probably, we've talked about that a lot. You've grown a love of sneakers as well, but I wanted to pitch in cleats that I wanted to pitch in. So I found this company that would convert a shoe into a cleat. And so when I was playing for Baltimore in Kansas city, I put cleats on an air Jordan one, I put cleats on a foam posit and, you know, the internet wasn't what it was. You couldn't really break it back in those days, but you know, people loved it. Like, oh my they gosh, this guy it. is pitching in foam well, you, posits. You, but you, you were like, a you were like a sneakerhead before sneakerheads. Like you were so far ahead of that. I curve. appreciate that. You know, I consider myself an OG. No, like you were so <laughs> far ahead of it. Like you were a decade but, early, you know, like you, and that's always kind of been you. I, I think of the last five years and it's just kind of exploded. Yeah, it has. You know? it has. But, but, you, but so you, custom you cleats is a, is a company that puts cleats, whether it's golf cleats, softball, football. I mean, we, this year, Derek Carr for the Saints was wearing custom cleats in training camp you know, like shoes that he sent to us and we attached football bottoms onto him and sent them back to him. And he's like rocking them in camp just to kind of have a new shoe that yeah. no one else had. Yeah. And so when I, at the end of my career, the owner, Anthony Ambrosini reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to invest? I'd love to have you as a partner. I invested. 
And then six years later, eight years later, actually, he says, Hey, do you want to buy it? Like, I'm, you know, I've, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready to sell it. I'd love to go do some additional things in my life. And so we buy it, me and my partner, Brian from BYU. Now, six months into this, now we're running it and we're trying to, so to grow it. It's fun. You know, I, I just, I have a passion for it. So it's easy to want to do it yeah. when you love sneakers and you get to talk to athletes that love sneakers as well. And they're like, Hey, you know, what so, I, so I mean, on like this? we, we have, you know, and obviously I want everybody that's ends up watching this to go. Go get it. Yeah. Go get a conversion. Cleats, you know, get some golf shoes and we're going to, you know, our company is going to go, you know, start spending some money and getting some custom golf shoes and, you know, delighting people with them. But how did you like, where did this sneaker love come from and give kind of, you know, some insight into the addiction? Cause yeah. it is full blown an addiction. Like it is, it is. <laughs> I battle with it every day though. I, I have some good days and good weeks where I don't buy a pair of shoes. So, um, I grew up in Oregon, and so you have proximity to, to Nike yeah, headquarters, like, which is up in Beaverton. And so that's an aspect of it. But the biggest reason for me is I remember when I was a seven-year-old kid, and I went to my brother's high school game. He was a, he was a freshman. And at Joe Lane Junior High School, they're red, white, and black were their colors. And they all got a team shoe. And the team shoe they had was the Air Jordan 1, white, black, and red, Chicago colorway. And I, I remember looking at their team like that is so cool looking. And then I learned about Michael Jordan, who is a rookie. I kind of learned who he was. And of course he became the greatest ever play. And so my love for sneakers was more associated with Michael himself, but also just that look. And so at a young age, I'm like, I, and I had to have a pair. So my mom, I asked my mom for Christmas and she got me a pair of Air Jordan ones and the little small sizes. They actually said Sky Jordan instead of Air Jordan. and I just became a Michael Jordan fan. So my passion for sneakers really was centered on Jordan shoes because yeah. to me, the sneaker represented the athlete. And, yeah. then I, and, I, and then I attached it to Charles Barkley and athletes like the Fab Five and started to love Air Max shoes. And so for me, my love is really associated with the athletes that wore them and their stories behind their successes and their failures and their growth. And um, I would collect shoes. I would keep them. I would clean them. I'd be the kid at at halftime, when we go into the locker room, I'm getting a wet towel and wiping off where all the people stepped on my shoes. So my, they look nice and shiny for, for the second half. And, um, that just kind of always been my, you just gig. always loved them, loved, always loved, always loved having shoes, always wanted to have the nicest, cleanest looking shoes. And, and then you start to grow that, you know, I want a shoe that nobody else has. And so as I got into high school and later on, I just would try to find shoes that no one else could have. I remember. So, so where is this rabbit hole? Oh, the, take you? <laughs> it's more like a crater at this point. It's a black hole. Um, I would say I got as bad as having like a thousand plus shoes. Um, I've since given some away. I've thrown some away and I've sold plenty of them. Just, you know, like, like I don't need a thousand pair of shoes at all. And I don't even want a thousand pair of shoes. 600 is probably the proper number. No, I'm down to like, I actually keep a running tab on my phone. I have a note of every shoe and every size. You have it. Last time I looked, it's like at 295. So I'm a, I'm a very healthy, you're you're a moderate, you're a, I'm a very healthy recovering (laughs) shoeaholic. Okay. I'm in, I'm in good shape right now. Going out and seeing you in Houston. This is all like when you're a mission president, which we haven't talked about that, but we should. So you're, you know, young mission president for your church, which, which is like a full contrast from playing pro baseball. You literally moved to, to do something. You mean move, move <laughs> to Houston, move to Houston and like manage, you know, 150, 170 people for three years. Yeah. And you're the leader. 
And I remember going out and seeing you and receipt, you know, see you and Jen and you had like, how was I looking? You, had, uh, you didn't look too good, but, you, <laughs> but, your, too good. but your shoes looked really good. You had like a full set of like Travis Scott's that were yeah, un- you know unreleased. That was a good friend. Yeah, that like they did they not did, get they released. They sent me a little, yeah. a little bone. Like, hey, it was like a little purple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah. But no, uh, I think, I, I think that, um, to that time in Spain or not in Spain, sorry, in Houston, just the biggest key was trying to learn how to be selfless and, and help others. And that was a big adjustment from someone that had played baseball his whole life. Um, and then relating back to the sneakers. Yeah. Like, so, you know, I I still love them. I still wear them with, with gusto and excitement. So, so, So talk to me about what is your favorite pair of shoes you've ever had? Um, out of thousands of shoes, that's a really tough. What's question. the number one? Probably that the you're number the one. Most proud of uh, the probably the number one is I have a pair of Air Jordan cleats that he wore as a baseball player, and they were the first ones he wore because they have a double zero on the heel instead of the forty five that he eventually wore. And to me, they're the most kind of significant because Michael Jordan had won three NBA championships in a row, and he loses his father and goes through a really dramatic change in his life, a huge loss. Yeah. And he decides to retire from basketball, I think maybe 32 or 33 years old at the time. And he pursues baseball. And he did that because baseball was his father's father's dream. His father always wanted him to be a baseball player. And Michael loved baseball as a young athlete. And so he said, I'm going to go do this. And who knows all the reasons, but in short measure, he said, I'm going to do this for my dad and I'm going to do it for me. And so he went and pursued a professional baseball career. And as you might imagine, the naysayers were very loud and the the critics of it were extremely loud. And even the baseball side, not just the basketball, but the baseball, like, Hey, you're going to come over here and, and pretend to think you can do something that guys that have been working their whole lives are working to do. And he was never disrespectful. Yeah. Who do you think you are? Yeah. He was never disrespectful. Listen, I'm doing this because I love it, but I have the utmost respect for these guys. Not like I think I'm such a good athlete. I can just do it in, in a few months. Yeah. And so why I love the shoes is because he did what he felt was best and he really didn't care what anyone else said. He said, I do this because I want to do this. And he defined his success, not by batting average or home runs hit or, or anything else. He defined his success by his effort to be the best he could become. And he gave an interview with Dick Vitale. And, and I just remember I heard this as a 15 year old that he said, Dick, he says, they can't tell me I'm, I'm a failure. He says, they're wrong if they say I'm a failure. He says, I'm not a failure because I've given the best that I can give. And he said, look at my hands. And he showed him his hands and they were bloody and they were bandaged and taped. He says, I'm taking hundreds of swings every day. I'm here at 5 a.m. I'm the last one to leave, the first one to come. I'm trying to do in a couple of months what these other players have done in years. He says, so they can't tell me I'm a failure because my definition of failing and succeeding is different than most. And I'm a success every single day, even in baseball. And so that shoe to me doesn't represent a guy that made it to the big leagues and hit 40 home runs and became an MVP. It represents the greatest to do one sport who had enough courage and devotion and understanding of who he was and what success in life is to go pursue a dream. And despite his failures, which were very public and in front of a lot of fans, still go to bed at night and say, I am a success. And that message is a message of humanity. It's a message of faith in God that your best in doing who becoming and defining success, defining success yeah. and doing all you can to do your best. That's all that's needed. Yeah. 
And, and that's all that anyone would ever ask of you, including if you're a person of faith, God, like he just, he wants to encourage you. He wants to strengthen you to give your best. And he's there the whole time right alongside with you doing that. And so that pair of shoes that are signed by Michael from 1994 or 95, 94 is my favorite pair. That's the, I mean, that it's just a special story. No, it's so cool. Well, Jared, I mean, we could go on forever and, you know, I think we have to, I think we have to like do this again, but you know, I think it's time to have you go appreciate to, dinner, it. to yeah. dinner with your daughter. <laughs> I, I know you got some stuff going on, but I, I appreciate you coming and spending the time and, you know, just want to tell you like, as a, you know, as a friend, like I really admire the way that you go about life. I, I admire your intentionality. I admire your sincerity, like you, you, how you show up, you show up with a, a an energy of like friendship and compassion. And it's just, it's a, it's a gift to everybody that you come in contact with myself included and honor you as a man and as a, you know, as a friend and just want to tell you, thanks for coming and doing this with me. Casey, I appreciate it. No one I'd rather be with. You keep doing all the great things you do. Such a great mentor, leader, philanthropist. Just you're inspiring to me as well. So all right, brother. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.